We are in Yoshua, Perik, Vav. We'll, we'll review, we'll overlap a little bit some of the last two psukim that we did. It's been a while. So we'll start from, we'll start from Perik, Perik Vav, Pasuk Tez Vav. We're reading about the, the conquest of Yericho. The, the plan was that we're going to circle Yericho for seven days, either ending on Shabbos or not ending on Shabbos, but uh, that we're going to circle Yericho for seven days. On the, the climax of this ceremony on the seventh day, they were going to circle seven times and not just once, and then they would cry out a great trua, a great, cry, a great crying out, and then the walls of Yericho would, would sink into the ground. They'd be able to invade the city, get past those impregnable walls, and, and capture the city. Sink into the ground or fall? Yes, that's a good question. We'll, we'll have to see exactly what the walls did, uh, what, what happened to the walls. We'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll get to that. We'll take a look. We'll, we'll see what the circum indicates. So we'll start from Pasuk Tesvav. It says, on the seventh day, which again we said uh, the, 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 there is a Midrashic tradition that the seventh day means the seventh day of the week. The seventh day was on Shabbos, and they fought the final battle, and they, they actually conquered Yericho on Shabbos. Some say it was not Shabbos, it just means the seventh day of this seven day ritual. But either way, they arose early at the break of dawn. And they circled the city in the same way seven times. But rock by only on that day did they circle the city seven times. The earlier days they had circled the city once. This day they did the same thing, but they did it seven times. So on the seventh day they circled the city seven times. And on the seventh circuit, the, 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 the seventh time around the city, the Kohanim blew the Shofaras. And Yoshua told the people, Hariu, you should cry out. To hear the, some of the Mepharshim say Hariu means to, to cry out uh, verbally. Trua, we know, of course, in the context of Roshana means Trua of a chauffeur, but it can also just mean uh, cry out. So he, said, cry, he told the people, now cry out. We mentioned a while back that the Ralbag says they were not supposed to make any noise during the first seven days. They wanted to retain some element of surprise, but now it's time to cry out. Now we're making the assault on the city. Hashem has given the city into your hands, and so now cry out, and now we're going to attack the city. Yoshua ordered, The city shall be a cherem, it shall be, everything shall be either destroyed or given to, given to Hashem. We saw, there, we, there was a, we discussed, last, we discussed uh, a month or two ago, there, there, are, there are different approaches here where Yoshua got this idea from. It doesn't say anywhere that Hashem had told him to make the city cherem. So there is an approach in the Gemara and Chazal that Yoshua said this on his own, his own initiative. He, he, he thought the city should be Cherem. Uh, others say that he had a Nevuah, even though the Torah doesn't mention the, the Sukkim don't mention it. He actually had a Nevuah to this effect. But whatever it was, Yoshua instructed the city shall be Cherem, it shall be consecrated to Hashem. Nobody shall take any, any of the loot, any of the plunder from the city for his personal use. Cherem, Hivachal Asherbah, the city and all its contents. Rak, Rachaf Azona, the one thing you shall spare is Rachav Hazona, the woman Rachav who had helped the, the spies back in Perak Beis. Because she hid the, the Malachim, the messengers, the spies. She, she hid them when we sent them back uh, to, to scout the city. So there's an interesting discussion there, Albag and Abarbanel discuss. Why do they spare Rachav Hazona? 
they swear because she did them to save her. She she helped them out, and because they swore they would, they, they promised her that they had taken a solemn oath that they would, as long as she as long as she would abide by these rules and stay inside her house, they would spare her and her family. So the Ralbag says, why does it say because she hid them and not because they swore? So the Ralbag says the oath may actually not have been valid. He says, that, you know, bureaucracy. The question is, who authorized the spies to bind the Jewish people? Did, did, they, did anyone delegate them the authority to make promises? In the spy stories, you always have this. The, when, when, when the spy masters negotiate with spies, they always say, I want this, I want that. I have to consult my superiors. You know, so the question is, they, they, they never made a, made a call to say, can we, can we grant this or not? So the Ralbag actually proposes that the oath itself would not have been strictly binding, but as a matter of honor, as a matter of gratitude, because, because she spared them, that's why they were willing to, to, to save her. The Barbara says, even more, maybe more simply, more straightforwardly, he says, it's all the same thing. Why do they promise her? Because of gratitude, because she had saved them. So this was the root cause. The root cause was because she had saved them. That was concretized in a shvua. But ultimately, the reason for the shvua was because she had saved them. So it really boils down to the same thing. Because she had done this great, uh, this great service to them, she had hidden them and not turned them over and had, and had helped them avoid detection and capture. So we will repay the, we will repay her. We will, we will, we will not. We will spare her, spare her whole family, and and, that, and that's what they, that's what Yeshua instructed them to do. And then in Pasuk Yudches, Yeshua said, You shall keep yourselves, guard yourselves from the cherem, from taking anything from the city. Pen tachrimu Lest, you know, the word tachrimu is not exactly clear uh, what it means. The Sama Farshim say in Mitzvah David, tachrimu means you will cause the Jews. Cherem can, can, can have a meaning of destroy, of, of uh, destruction and uh, devastation. If you take from the cherem, you're going to cause destruction to befall Klal Yisrael, which is indeed what happened when, when we're going to read about the tragedy that Achan, a man named Achan, took some, some stuff from the cherem, and that caused the Jews to lose a battle, to lose the battle at the eye. That's what happened. He took from the cherem, and he caused, uh, he caused pen tachrimu, he caused them to, uh, to suffer. The... The, the Radak says, Pen Takrimu means According to the Radak, Takrimu means you will violate the Kherim. Ulakakta Minacherim is just an explanation of what Takrimu means. But either way, the, the Yeshua was saying, be, be careful to abide by the rules of this Kherim. Don't take anything for yourself. The Samtem, as Machna Yisrael, the And that's what the Pasuk says. If you do this, you will cause the Machna Yisrael to be in Kherim, to be in ruin and destruction. Also, you will soil and foul up the, the, the Machna Yisrael. So don't do that. That's a good question. Yeah. So, so it's it's not clear. We 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 mentioned uh, we mentioned a while back that in in in, your, in Hashem's commandments to Yoshua, there is no mention of any of any anything about a cherem, no mention of anything. And indeed, there, there is a Gemara that says that Yoshua instituted this on his own, and Hashem agreed. Hashem endorsed it, but it was Yoshua's own project. Others suggest that uh, Yoshua had had instructions to this effect from Hashem. Even though the even though the Navi does not even even though the Navi doesn't mention that the Radak on on Pasuk Yudzayin the Radak says even though the Pasuk doesn't mention that Yeshua was instructed about this cherem there are many cases in the, in the Navian where a Navi says something and uh, it doesn't say he was instructed to that effect by Hashem but the assumption is that it was one, one, but then he goes on and says. 
So no, Yeshua said it on his own initiative, but Hashem agreed after the fact. There's a similar debate, maybe we'll get to it eventually and take us some time, but in, in Sefer Malachim, there's a debate about one of the most famous stories in Sefer Malachim, we read it in the Haftarah, I forget which parsha, but uh, we, 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 there, there's a, story, a famous story about Elio at Mount Carmel, at Har Carmel, where, the, where most of the Jews had been following the Baal, the idol of Baal, and Elio wanted to make a grand public demonstration that Hashem is the true God and Baal is, uh, is false sort of emptiness. So he made a grand showdown at, at Har Carmel. He said, we're going to take two bulls, and you, the Nevi'eh HaBaal, you take one, and I'm the Navi of Hashem, I'm the only one left. He several had exterminated systematically all the Nevi'eh all the Nevi'im of Hashem that you could find. I'll take the other bull, and we'll each offer the bull to our God, and we'll see which God answers, uh, we'll see which God answers the, answers our offering. So it says Nevi'eh HaBaal went first, and then they prepared the, their offering, and they offered it to Baal, and they went through their rituals, and they cried out to Baal. And no one answered, and no one said anything. Eliel mocked them, and he said, call out louder. Maybe he's in the bathroom, maybe he's busy, and, you know, and maybe he can't hear you. Then Eliel, nobody answered, and it was Eliel's turn, so he, he, he made a whole spectacle. He, he, put the, he put his bull on the altar. He, he rebuilt the altar of Hashem. He put his bull on the altar, and then he ordered water to be poured all over it to make it even less flammable, and he doused the whole thing in water several times. And then he called out to Hashem, and a great fire came down and consumed his offering, and all the people cried out, Hashem hu Elohim. And it was a grand, uh, a grand spectacle, a grand demonstration of the power of Hashem. So the, the Mefarshim discussed there, did Elio get any authorization for this? First of all, there was a halachic issue that, that in the time of the temple, they weren't allowed to, order, to offer sacrifices outside, outside the temple. This, this, this was what we call Isra Habamas. So the Gemara says it was a harasha. Navi is allowed to temporarily, on an ad hoc basis, suspend the certain parts of the Torah. Most ordinary halachas of the Torah, the Navi can suspend on a temporary basis. But the question is, who told Elio Hashem would do this? How did he have the confidence to know that uh, if I did that, Hashem wouldn't? I, I can't. I can't have any confidence. Hashem would answer and send out a fire. How did Elio know that Hashem would do it? So I think there are some who say that he actually had a nevuah to this effect. Others say Elio had, was, had so much and so much confidence in God, he knew that in this in this situation, he, he was convinced that God would grant him a sign and would, uh, would, would accept his offering. But uh, here, also, the, here also we have a machlokus like this, when Yeshua said it should be a cherim, so there is an approach in Chazal, in rabbinic literature, that Yeshua had been instructed to do this, and while others say it was just Yeshua's own initiative that, that he did this on his own. Right, taking from the cherem, uh, taking from the cherem would 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 uh, would minimize the. The, what, what? Right, we would decrease the divine aspect, perhaps. Yeah, so we, we mentioned also last time that, that, that we mentioned a while back also that there, that there were several different approaches in Chazal and the Rishonim for what the point of this harem was. Why they, they, they didn't normally do harems when they conquered cities? Why here? And what was the point? So they say it was the first, the first one. They wanted to start off with a special acknowledgement of uh, Kosh Baruch Hu's power. You know, some say this was a special mace. In the other cities, they didn't have miraculous toppling of walls. So this was, Barbara uh, Nelson, because this was Hashem's uh, direct divine intervention, so they consecrated the city to Hashem. The, the, the Ralbag says that, that, that they, 
had people taken, or Al-Baghdad is a very uh, curious idea, he says, had they taken property from the city, then when they would have been victorious in future wars, they would have attributed it to the, the luck of the property they had taken, that, that oh, these are good luck things. That, you think they just sacked Yericho, they would realize they weren't, they, 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 they didn't have any power, but sometimes you find that in Tanakh. That the victor would somehow adopt the, 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 the false beliefs, the idolatry of the, of the loser. Some, the, the, that was the concern. Some say it was like Truma, consecrating the first, the, the, the Bukhar, the, the firstborn, or the first, first fruits, the Kurim, or Truma, the, 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 a little bit of the beginning of, of, of one's uh, accomplishments, devote Tashem. So there are a variety of different explanations. I, I think it was customary in those days, in that, in that period, if you conquered another city, you took their gods. Right, he, he so took their gods as. We don't want that. We, right, we don't want to give them any any, any validity of gods. Or, I'm sorry, Kevin. Like, were you saying at that point that the Aaron may have been to protect Rahav and the family? The to protect the uh, prostitute family. Why nobody would harass them? They would have to so, themselves. So. I, I, we, so the question is: Is there a connection between this cherem and between the protection of Rachel Hazona? I, I didn't suggest that. I, I didn't see such an idea. It's possible somebody might propose that. These were two unique features of Yericha: one that they protected a certain group of people, and one that they made a cherem. Is there any connection between them? I don't know. It's an interesting idea. We'll we'll, we'll talk a little more about about Rachel Hazona and her protection in a moment. So, so, so let's read a little further. So, prosecute tests. Says, All vessels of silver, of gold, of copper, iron shall be uh, consecrated to Hashem. Hashem Yavo, they shall be brought to the Otsar Hashem, to the treasure house of Hashem. Some say that was the, the Ohel Moed. The, the, they had previously, in, in the battle against Midian, in Pashas Pimchas and Matas, the, the, the battle against Midian, they had, conquered, they had captured all kinds of. Silver and precious metals. It says they had contributed a certain amount to, to the to the temp to the, to the Mishkan, and they, they they had a storehouse of that. And so the plunder here was put there as well. I don't know how much there was, how much room it would have taken to put a whole city's worth of. Uh, I don't know how much gold and silver they had, but it includes copper and iron as well. So I don't know how much there was, but uh, the Mefarshim say this was not flammable, so so they couldn't just uh, they couldn't just burn it. So the. The, the Matudas David focuses on the fact these were precious metals, so they belonged in Otsar Hashem. Others say that these were non-flammable, that they wouldn't burn, so they, so, so they, they couldn't destroy them. That, so that's where they brought them to the Otsar Hashem. Either way, those were the instructions that silver, gold, copper, and iron were consecrated to Hashem. They brought them to the they brought them to the to the Otsar Hashem. That was, they didn't do it yet, but 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 that those were the, those were the instructions. That was that was what they were. Uh, that was what that was what that that was what that that, that was what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to. As Robert Nelson, they couldn't burn them because they they can melt. But but they, you get you get a really hot enough temperature. Some some metals can burn as well. But practically, it's not it's not easy to burn metal. These kind of metals bring in Otsar Beis Hashem, the oil moed, because it's Kodesh Lashem. Pasuchaf, the Torah says they they carried out these orders. Vayara Ha'am Vayisku Bashofaros. People cried out and they blew the shofaros. When the people heard the kol shofar, they cried out the great trua. So this is you were asking me what exactly happened to the wall. It says it fell underneath itself. It just it just fell onto itself. The people entered the city. Each person entered the, wherever he was, and they conquered the city. 
So the, the, the beginning of this Pasuk causes a little puzzlement for the Mepharshim. It says, Vayaraham, the people cried out, and then Vayisku Vashofaras, and then they blew the Shofaras. And then it says the reverse, Vayishmoham, it's called a Shofar, when they heard the sound of the Shofar, Vayariuham, they, they, they cried out. So first of all, it sounds repetitious. We said Vayaraham, Vayisku, and then it says, when they heard the Shofar, Vayariu, it sounds like it just repeats the same thing. And it switches the order. First it says, Vayaraham, Vayisku, and then it says, when they heard the Kala Shofar, Vayariu. Right, so, 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 so there, are, there are at least two approaches in the commentary. So one of them, as Jerry was saying, one approach is that there were two separate things. First, the people cried out spontaneously, and then they blew the shofaras. And then they had been instructed earlier when they heard the shofaras, they should cry out. Then when they heard the shofaras, they gave the official cry, the one they'd been ordered to do. So it was actually two separate things. First, they gave a, a spontaneous, uh, unprompted prompt. When, when they heard the news of uh, Yeshua had told them we're about to conquer the city, they all, they all cheered, you know, yay, they all cheered out in joy that we're about to conquer our first city, Yericho. Then they, they blew the shofar as per the instructions. And then the orders were, when you hear, when you hear the shofar, you cry out. Then they cried out. Others say that, that, it, that, that the Navi is just repeating the same thing in, in, in different words, that, that it means, Masudah David says, Chozir Mepharish. First, the passage just says briefly, it says, they cried out and they blew the shofar. Pasuk explains how did that happen. What happened was when they heard the shofar, then they all cried out as per their instructions earlier. Yes, I'm sorry. Was it the entire nation that circled, or just the mighty uh, men? Yes. Yeah, so we discussed that in previous year also. Who 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 exactly circled? Who exactly circled? Was it was it the the whole nation or not? So back in Pasuk Gimel, it says that seven kohanim carried seven shofaros. They were holchim halach v'saku b'shofaros. They they circled. There was the, the armed group that went in front of them. So there apparently wasn't just the Kohanim. It was, uh, it was apparently, at least at that phase, it was the soldiers as well. I don't remember. Shevedon, Rashi says, was the Ma'asif. So it sounds like it was actually the, sounds like it was actually the whole people. I don't remember, I don't remember all, the, all, the, all, all the details of that. But... I don't remember all the details, but 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 it does it does sound like at least part of the circling was done was done uh, was done by the people itself. So they cried out, they blew the shofar once, twice, as we said. Though the walls toppled, we we mentioned last time a question about how did uh, it afterwards they went and they got Rachav, they got Rachav. What happened if the walls were toppling? What happened to her exactly? They, they, didn't, they didn't go get her till after the walls fell. So where was she while the walls were falling? So some say that there were actually different parts of the of the wall. The Radak says only the wall that was facing the main army fell, the, the rest of the wall stayed intact, and her house was in a different part of the wall. Others say that all the wall fell all the way around, but the, the Vilna Gon had a shot that there were actually, her house had two parts. One part was in the wall, and one part was within that, uh, actually in, within the city itself. So the part of her house that was in the walls fell, but she stayed in the part of the house that was just inside the city. That part didn't fall. The, the Barbanel says what happened was the walls fell. But again, this speaks to what you were asking, how did they fall? They didn't just collapse in a giant earthquake. They, 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 they just sank straight down. They fell where they were. So people were in the house, but they, but they were spared. They, they, were, they didn't just have rocks and beams falling all over the place. You just had a neat and orderly sinking down and falling to the ground. And they, they had marked the spot. They, they looked to see where her, uh, her, 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 her thread hanging from the window was. They, they made a note, this is where Rachav's house is. When all the walls went down, they looked at their maps, they went back and said, okay, this is the area where all the people standing in this spot, that's where Rachav's house used to be. And then they went and pulled them out uh, from where her house had, 
used to be before all the walls collapsed. Sorry? It was like a giant sinkhole. Right, like a giant sinkhole. The walls just collapsed, and the people stayed where they were, and the walls collapsed around them, right. So people came in, they, they conquered the city. They, they annihilated everyone in the city. Men and women. This is part of the, the genocide we talk about uh, that, they, that they did against Canaan. They killed everyone. The Torah says, Young and old. They killed the animals as well. We said the, the precious metals they saved, but the, but the property, the property they destroyed, the animals and everything they destroyed. To the two spies, the two scouts who had uh, scouted out the land. Amr Yoshua, he gave them instructions again. He said, Go to the house or whatever was left of the house, the, the spot where the house had been. Or, or if the house itself was still there, according to some explanations, go to the house of the Isha Zona, Rachav. Bring out from there the woman herself, all her family, all her things, as you promised. So again, we mentioned before the before they said, because she hid, now, now it says, because you promised. So both were true. The young men, here it calls them Narim, an interesting word. They weren't that young. We said they were Kalev and Pinchas, who were uh, apparently uh, mature adults at this point, but uh, he calls them Narim over here. Um, Rashi, Rashi addresses this. Rashi says, the reason it refers to them as Narim, which is not A, they, they weren't that young, and B, they uh, doesn't, it doesn't usually refer to them as Narim, usually refers to them as Maraglim or Anashim. Why does it call them Narim here? So it says that the... They needed zeros. They had to act with alacrity to rescue them, to make sure that no one, no one touched them, to, to quickly uh, to get them out, but to, to make sure that nothing, uh, to make sure that nothing, no harm fell to them. So it calls them narim, not because they were physically young, but because they had to act with uh, with energy and with uh, with dispatch over here to make sure that they that they saved them to. Uh, they make, make, they make sure, make sure to save them. Make sure that no harm would befall them. So they acted like Narim with uh, with alacrity. Rashi says, "Belayla Rishon." That first night, where they were actually on their mission of spying, they calls them Malachim. It says they refers to them as Malachim. Even here, it, it uh, even here, it's uh, even here it does it does refer to them. I think as even even here it does refer to them as Malachim. Back in Pasuk Yudzayin, it says. But again, Malachim refers to them when they acted in their capacity as spies. It calls them Malachim. Kipshuto, because that's when they were on a mission. That's when they were emissaries of Yeshua. Rashi says, uh, a Midrashic approach, they had to, Rachav was a zona. Rachav was, uh, was a woman who was a professional prostitute, according to many, many, many interpretations. They had to avoid temptation and not sin with her. Military men, spies, are often uh, get a little too close to their, uh, their targets, or their, so they had to avoid sin. It calls them malachim, that they acted like angels, they, they didn't give in to temptation. And that's why we find three different terms. Rashi says sometimes they're called anashim, because that's what they were, they were ultimately men. Sometimes they're called malachim, because they acted with piety and holiness and didn't sin. And here it calls them narim, because they acted with alacrity. Radak says a little differently. Radak, explaining more according to Pshutashal Mikra, Radak says, what is this term narim? He says, kol mesharei sikare nar. The term, the term nar in Hebrew has different shades of meaning. Commonly, it means young men, but also he says it can mean attendant or uh, aide, aide as we say, or assistant. Someone who's an aide or an assistant is called a nar, like Yeshua himself. Yeshua himself was called Yeshua ben Nun Nar. 
he wasn't young necessarily, but he was Moshe's aide. He was Moshe's uh, lieutenant, Moshe's assistant. So Nar is often used to mean assistant or attendant. He says these Anashim were either, they, either we could say they were Nare Yoshua. They were on his staff. They, they, they were, you know, again, there were different shots of who they were, Kalev and, uh, and Penchas, or maybe, maybe others, but these were members of his staff, so it calls them his Narim because they were his aides. They, they, were, his, they were his aides. Or they were Nare Echemigdala Yisrael. Maybe they were on the staff of some other uh, important figure. That's why, according to the Radak, that's why it calls them Narim because they were, because they were uh, assistants, aides. So the Naram went, Meraglim, they, they brought out Rachav, her father, her mother, her brothers, anyone, no matter, uh, anyone, no matter how uh, loosely connected they were to her, all her families, all, all, anyone connected to Rachav, and then they, uh, they placed them in a you know, secure location outside Machina Israel, I guess, so they shouldn't be killed in the chaos of the battle. Bahair, and then the city, now that Rachav was safely, uh, safely extracted, Bahair, Sarfu Vaesh, they burned the city, the Chalashabah, they destroyed everything. We said, Raka Kesef and Barzel, Kalim made of these four metals silver, gold, copper, and iron either, like we said, because they wouldn't burn easily or because they were precious and they were spared and consecrated to the temple. Nasnu Otsar Beis Hashem, those were brought to the, the Otsar Beis Hashem, the Otsar Beis Hashem to, the, to the, the, the treasure house of Beis Hashem. Incidentally, a favorite point, uh, favorite point of mine, there are, in, in Tanakh in general, there are six medals that are listed. And throughout Tanakh, we have references to six medals. These four... Gold, silver, copper, the three we had in the Mishkan, Zav, Kesim, and Choshis. These three, plus Barzel. Barzel is uh, number four, iron. There are two more metals that are mentioned in, in the Torah, and they are Bedil and Ophoros. Bedil is typically translated as tin, and Ophoros as lead. Uh, we find all six, I think, in the, in the story of the Battle of Midian. It says, it, where it talks about being Tovel, the Torah talks about being Tovel Kalim that you, that, you that you acquire from non-Jews. It says these six metals, gold, silver, copper, iron, tin, lead, bitovel, uh, bitovel. You know, they didn't have that many other metals in antiquity. They had alloys of combinations of these various metals, but the, in the medieval period, the, 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 the scholars sometimes referred to seven metals. Not exactly clear what the seventh one was. Antimony, I think I saw somewhere once. But today we know in chemistry and periodic table, today we have lots of metals. We have, we have uranium and plutonium. They're not you know, commonly found. Those metals, we have aluminum. We have, uh, that is, that, that aluminum is a common metal, at least after processing. And uh, so it's, it's actually relevant lahalacha because when it comes to the, the laws of being tovil kalim, so we, we know the basic rule is metal kalim nitvila, nitvila, glass kalim nitvila, other kalim, wood, plastic, according to many poskim, does not need tefillah. So there's actually a question about aluminum kalim, whether aluminum kalim needs tefillah. Some poskim said that if you look in the psukim of the Klamidion, it lists seven, met- it lists six metals, and that's an exhaustive list. If you're not on that, if you're not on that list, you don't need tefillah. So you don't. So aluminum does not need tefillah. Aluminum is not one of the six metals that exist in the Bible. It's a relatively recent metal that we've discovered and learned how to extract and process. Others say those are examples. Uh, we're supposed to generalize to the concept of, to the context, uh, generalize the uh, the concept of metal. 
Aluminum is certainly a metal. It has all the chemical and physical properties of metal. Others say aluminum would be like glass, which is a dindrabanan, because the, the, the Gemara says glass, it shares some of the material properties, materials properties of, of metal, so that's why the Rabbanan were misakin and each tefillah. Some say aluminum would fall into that category. It may not be derisa, it's not listed, but it's, it's like glass, it will be included in, a, in exerid drabanan, that it's like metal, it's like the metals of the Bible. So there are actually three different opinions about aluminum, what to do with, uh, what to do with aluminum kalim. The, the minig, I think, is that we are tovel them, although with a bracha or without a bracha, I'm not sure what the prevailing custom is. But uh, anyway, so here there are four metals mentioned, for some reason only four, gold, silver, copper, and iron. They, everything else in the city they burned. These four kalim, these four kalim, they, uh, these four kalim, they, they put into the Otsar Beis Hashem. It says they put racha michutz l'machina. They put her in a place outside of the camp of the Jewish people. Why Michutz Lamachina? So, so I just suggested it was because to keep her safe, you know, the, the Jews were going around killing all the Canaanim. If she was around in the area of the battle, somebody might have uh, not realized and killed her. I thought it was for safety. The Radak gives a different reason. The Radak says they put her there because she wasn't yet Jewish. They were going to convert her eventually <coughs> to, to Judaism, but since she wasn't yet Jewish, she wasn't yet Jewish, she didn't belong in the, in the camp of the Jews. So they uh, sequestered her, that they put her in a. Uh, in a, in, in a separate location until she could convert. Once she would convert, she would be, uh, we're going to say later, the next passage that she lived in the midst of the Jewish people. After she converted, she was able to live among the Jews, but until then, they kept her separately. So let's read the next pasuk. That's Rachav HaZonah, that's Beisaviyah, that's Kalash Yerla, Hechia Yeshua. Rachav, the Zonah, and her, and her father's family, and all, all, all her connections. Hechia Yeshua, Yeshua let live. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss what the word Hechia means in a moment. And she lived, they lived in the midst of Israel, We discussed earlier in Yeshua the, the, the words, does that mean until the Navi was written, at whatever point in history this book was written down? Or does it mean mean uh, indefinitely whenever the Navi is read? It's still read today in the 21st century. It means that, they, so again, I, I, certainly there's no, one, there's no one today that we know of as the family of Rachav. So again, the simple shot would be Adayom Azem means when the Navi was written down, at the point in history when the Navi was written down. But anyway, why did they do this? The, the Navi reiterates again, in recompense because of the merit that she had, that she, she hid the, the messengers that Yeshua sent to scout Yericho, they spared her and Hechia Yeshua. I'm what? Sorry, what they, how, how does that passage identify the spies and the In this passage, he calls them Malachim. He calls them the Malachim who were sent Laragel. The Malachim who were sent to scout. Laragel means to scout or to, to spy. Here it covers both, yeah. Yeah, so, so the question is do we know if Rachav converted and what was Rachav's status? So there, there are a number of interesting Midrashim on the subject of of Rachav and her conversion. There is one Gemara in Megillah. The Gemara says that the Gemara in Megillah and Dafyadalad says, Igaira, Rachav converted to Judaism, and Nasva Yoshua. She married no less a figure than Yoshua. And it says that they had, uh, she had a number of distinguished descendants. It said, Shmona Nevi'im, Vehem Kohanim, eight prophets, eight notable, notable known prophets. Who were also Kohanim, were the descendants of Rachav Azona, of Eluhain, Neria, Baruch. Baruch ben Neria was a, was a figure in the time of Yermia. So Neria and Baruch, Suraya, Machasia, Yermia, Chilkia, Hanamel, Shalom, 
these are all figures who are mentioned in the Sifrei Nevi'im, and uh, the most famous one, of course, is Yirmiya. They were all descendants of of Rachav and the Gemara says she married Yeshua, so presumably the descendants of Rachav and Yeshua. Rabbi says a ninth prophet, a prophetess, a woman prophet, Afchulda Hanavia was Mibre Bonashal Rachav Azona Haisa. That Chulda uh, used the word Tikva in one of her in one of her Nevuos, and Tikva was the word that they referred to by Rachav. It says hang out the Tikva Sakodashani. That that, that that says it that she would hang the Tikva Sakodashani. So the word Tikva is an allusion to the fact that she came from Rachav. So according to Chazal, Rachav converted, she married Yoshua. It's, it's interesting that the, we're, we're, we'll discuss in a moment whether Yeshua did, with, 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 how is Yeshua, how are they allowed to keep Rachav alive, that they were commanded to, are you allowed to accept converts from the seven indigenous peoples of Canaan? Are, are you allowed to marry them? We'll discuss that in a moment. But there is a, there, there is a curious Midrash. The Midrash says, Amor HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael. The Midrash is also picking up on what the Bavli says that Yirmiya, the great prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, was a descendant of Rachav. So the Midrash says something very, very curious. It says, Akash Baruch Hu said to Israel, I commanded you to exterminate fully and totally, to annihilate all the Chitim and the Amorim, all the indigenous peoples of Canaan. And it says, you should do this because if you let them live, it says, I'm warning you, Hashem said, if you let them live, there'll be thorns in your sides. They're going to cause trouble for you. They're going to provoke you. They're going to cause you to sin. They, they, and that's what happened. We, 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 we're going we're to see later in Yeshua if we get there and Shoftim that they didn't. They, that the Jews did not succeed in fully killing the the, 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 the nations of the, of the time, and they did indeed cause them uh, many problems later, spiritual problems, material, military problems. So the, the so the midrash says Hashem told Yisrael. I told you you need to annihilate all the indigenous peoples of Canaan, the Chiti and the Murray, etc. You did not do that. Loasisim came. Rather, our Pasuk says, Rachav Yoshua. You let Rachav and all her family live. I'll show you. I said there'll be Sikim Beinem. Sikim Beinechem. They're going to cause you trouble. I'll show you that her descendants will cause you trouble. What kind of trouble? It says, this is a very funny midrash, it says, Yirmi is going to come. Yirmiya was a descendant of Rachav Azona. Yirmiya was a great uh, gadfly. He, he provoked the, the king. They threw him in jail. Yirmiya was jailed because he was such. Yirmiya was famously the prophet of doom. He, he, he prophesied doom. Yeshaya also prophesied Horban, but Yeshaya prophesied a lot of Nechama as well. Yeshaya had, had, a, had a lot of positive as as well. Yirmiya is an almost unrelenting. Unrelenting, unceasing prophecy of doom, of, 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 of catastrophe, of trouble. In, in English, a, a, a Jeremiah is a uh, or a Jeremiah is someone who, predi- who, who predicts gloom. So Yirmiyah was a great thorn in the side of the establishment. They, they kept saying, "Oh, things are going to be good. We're going to win." They were trying to keep the morale up, and Yirmiyah said, "No, you're going to lose. Everything's going to be terrible. Hashem is going to punish you. You're all a bunch of rishayim." Yirmiyah spoke truth to power. He did not find favor in the eyes of the, the kings of the time, and they threw him in jail. He wasn't killed, but, but, but he was jailed. So the, the Midrash says, the Midrash makes it sound like this was a punishment. He says, you should have killed all of the Canaanim. You didn't. So from the, from the descendants of the Canaanim that you let live, from, from Rachav, I'm going I'm I'm to uh, set up Yirmiyah, who's going to cause, uh, who's going to be such a... Uh, 
a thorn in your side. A very strange midrash. I mean, presumably Yermia was actually an asset to the Jewish people. The, the Rishayim, the Ovdiv and Azar didn't like him because he uh, didn't like he didn't like them. He, he gave them Musr. Presumably Yermia was, was a great asset to the Jewish people. He tried. He tried to get them to do tshuva. He tried to warn them what was coming. So I'm not sure if the midrash actually says that Yermia was a punishment to the Jewish people. They, they should not have kept Rachav alive. They shouldn't have promised to keep her alive. They actually should have killed her, or or, or a means, or, or the midrash is just speaking in a kind of uh, literary way. It's saying that you'll see that the people that you let live, they're, they're going to be the ones who are going to give you muster later on. I'm not sure what what exactly the point of the midrash is, but again, this midrash is following the same basic idea of the Bavli that Yirmiyah, among others, Yirmiyah was a descendant of Rachav, and the midrash is saying that the, the midrash was saying that this Rachav that you you let live, she's going to be the, the great-grandmother of, of Yermia, who's going, to be, who's going to cause you so much trouble later, later, later down the line. The, so th- there's a major question here, as I mentioned earlier. Were they actually allowed? What, what gave them the right, the, the halakhic right, to not kill Rachav and to not kill her family? They were commanded to annihilate all of... Uh, they, 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 they were commanded to annihilate all of the... All of the all, 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 all the inhabitants of Eretz Canaan. So, so in, in the midrash Yalkut Shimonim, the midrash alludes to this. It doesn't really give a halachic uh, comment on this, but it alludes to this. It says the, the midrash, following the Bavli, talks about the, the the great men and women who were descendants of Rachav, the eight Nevi'im and Chulda. And then the midrash says, the midrash says, "Valod Varim Kalvachomer." That uh, l- 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 look at how much potential people have. Rachav, Rachav came from a nation that the Torah said Lashama. You should annihilate all of them. But nevertheless, she had she, she had free will because she chose to uh, because she chose to to, to to come close to the Jewish people. She chose to throw her lot in with them. Then look look what happened. She she merited to be the the mother of all these great men. So certainly, Israel who keep the Torah, Jews were born with every advantage. If, if we keep the Torah, certainly, Alakas Kama Vakama, we have great things in store for us. The Midrash concludes, it says, there are some women, Hasidos, we, we have a list of pious women who came from, uh, it gives a whole bunch of women who came from, from uh, pagan or non, not particularly elevated backgrounds who made the choice to uh, be Hasidos, to be pious, and, and, and they're remembered as, uh, as, as, as legendary figures in Jewish history. The Midrash lists Hagar. Interesting, you know, Hagar is, is, is a mixed character, but uh, Hagar, is, Hagar has a great deal. Many more psukim in, in, in Tanakh are about her than about me. And uh, Osnas, Osnas was, was an Egyptian. There are some Midrashim that Osnas was actually from Yaakov's family, but Kapshuto Osnas was, like, like you said, like the daughter of Potipharah, an Egyptian. But she married Yosef and became uh, a foremother of a major tribe in Kalal Yisrael. Tzipora, Tzipora was a Midianite woman. She married Moshe. Shifra and Pua. Uh, Shifra and Pua, that's very interesting. According to the Midrash, famously, Shifra and Pua were Yocheved and Miriam. But this Midrash apparently is, is, assumes that Shifra and Pua, it sounds like they were Egyptian, the Egyptian midwives. Who were who were remembered as uh, as her- heroines who who flouted Paro, the dictator Paro's orders to save Jewish people. Bas Paro, the, the anonymous daughter of Paro, who saved Moshe Rabbeinu from the the, the the daughter of Paro is never actually named in Chumash. She is commonly assumed to have been named Basia or Bisya, because in Divrei Hayamim I think it refers to uh, 
it refers to a woman named it refers to a woman named Bisya, I think daughter of Paro, who uh, who is the generally identified in Midrashim with the daughter of Paro in Pasha Shmos. In Pasha Shmos, she's never actually named, but uh, it's commonly assumed to be to be Basia. My my daughter is named uh, is named Basia after this this woman, Rachav. Rachav was uh, Rachav was uh, again. She came. She was a daughter of Yericho, a Canaanite of some sort. And she. Yes. Yes. So, 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 so that's an excellent. That's an excellent point. We'll hold that thought. We'll get to that in a moment. There, there is going to be an approach that Rachav was actually an expatriate. She was not actually a Canaanite. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. The Midrash doesn't say. The Midrash just says she was not Jewish. She she, she came from some. Middle Eastern nation, like the other Egyptians and Midianites and here, but she merited uh, becoming close to the Jewish people and being a great tzedekis. Yael Ashes Chevrakeni, that's a story in Shoftim, also one of the Aftarah. She was Ashes Chevrakeni, not Jewish, they were friendly with the Jews. She was the one who uh, assassinated Sistra and, and, helped, and helped bring the Jewish triumph uh, to make it complete by, by, by assassinating the enemy general. Tevorach Minashim Yael, she, she's given a great bracha by by Dvorah and Barak. So these are, these are examples of about a half dozen women who were not Jewish, who, who, came, from, uh, who came from dubious uh, antecedents, pagan, pagan uh, nations of the time, who nevertheless rose above their upbringing. Hagar, Osnas, Tipara, Shifra, and Pua, Basparo, Rachav, Rus, Yael. Those are the women. So again, the, the Midrash raises the question of Losachaya called the Shama, that you're supposed to exterminate them. Nevertheless, she rose above that and she, uh, and she became a great Zedek. The question is, was she actually a Canaanite or could she perhaps have been, as Daniel suggested, from a, from a, uh, from, 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 from a different nation? So this idea is actually raised by the, by the Rishon. This, uh, this idea is raised, is, this, this idea is suggested by Rishonim. Um, I have to remember where I saw what. I saw there were several different, several different discussions, discussions of the topic. Let me see if I can find it. Um, Tosus, Tosus says in uh, Tosus, the Gemara and Sota discusses whether, whether uh, in general, the, the Shiva Alman, Knani, Chiti, Amari, Prizi, Yavusi, Yergashi, and... Uh, and Prizi, I think. Kani, Chiti, Amari, Kani, Knizi, Vusi, Vusi, right. So there are seven nations, there are three more nations, totaling ten. Of the Shiva Amaman, if they, if they become Gerim, are we allowed to accept them? So the Gemara brings Machlokas between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda in, in, in Masech HaSotah. Uh, Masech HaSotah, the Gemara brings a, uh, around now, around the Daf, uh, close to today, whether we accept Gerim from the from from the Shiva Amamin. Rabbi Huda says we do not. Rabbi Shimon says that we do. But Rabbi Shimon says that the, that the, brings a brisa that the Kananim of Kutflaret, the ones who are not in Eretz Kanan, we accept Gerim from them. Tosa says that the implication is that the Kananim in Eretz Israel, according to everyone, we don't accept Gerim. That's the, the assumption of Tosus and Sota. So Tosa says. Tosis brings this midrash. He brings it as a sifri that says the sifri says that she that, that, that she was a Canaanite. The the the, the, Alkut, the sifri that the midrash says she was from the nation. That it says So the midrash seems to assume that she was not an expatriate living in Yericho. She actually came from one of the nations that says But nevertheless, she 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 came close to to, to the Jewish people, and we let her, and uh, they kept her alive. And Yeshua married her. 
Here it says that the Kananim and Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Kanan, according to everyone, he can't accept Gerim. Only the Kananim and Chutzlar, that's the Machlokas, Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. But in Eretz Yisrael, according to everyone, you, can, you cannot accept Gerim. So Tosa says, maybe you was a Harashal, maybe the Hashem made a special dispensation for her. Some say, he suggests, that maybe you can say that before, that before they actually began the war, there was a, a kind of a more, there was a, a amnesty period they could, the, that once they started the war, they had to kill everyone. But, but th- those who, those who uh, threw in their lot with the Jewish people before the war, they were able to macabre them. Tosis rejects that. Tosis doesn't like that. Then he suggests that uh, maybe, maybe earlier when, when, they, when they crossed the yard and they wrote the Torah on the stones, maybe at that point there was an ad, they, they were allowed to accept them as Gerim. If they, if they chose to accept the Torah back then, they were, they were allowed to macabre them. Uh, it, it, it's Tosis tries that. He goes through a discussion of that. So Tosis is not sure. Tosis is not sure how they can macabre her as a Gerim. What happens to Lezakai Kol Neshama? He, he, has, he has these various pshatim. He has these. He, he, he has these various pshatim that maybe for some reason they were they were allowed to be makabel rachav either because you know, he, he alludes to the idea that maybe she didn't come from the shiva Amamin, but he says it's the, the the implication of the midrash is that she did. Then he says maybe the he suggests, he suggests that maybe maybe before the war started they were allowed to be makabel uh, them as gerim. He says it's not mashma that way. Maybe at the time they wrote the Torah on the stones they were allowed to be makabel gerim. Tosis has uh, t- several pshat. Tosis in that was Tosis in Sota. Tosis in Megillah has Daniel's suggestion. Tosis in Megillah on that Gemara that says that Rachav became a Giyaris and married Yoshua. Tosis says, Kasha, how could he marry her? It says in Yevamos, Dafilu begerusa and less luchasnus. That 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 that, you're, that, that, that even 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 that that even if they're that, that even if you're megayer them, you're not allowed to marry them. In other words, there are really two questions we can ask about Rachav, the treatment of Rachav. One of them is, how can they not uh, kill her? The Torah says, Lusachaya kol l'shama, you have to kill all of them. The second question is, you're not allowed to marry them. The Torah says, Lotus chatin bam, you're not allowed to marry. There's all discussion in the Gemara, whether, whether that's a general prohibition of intermarriage on all, all non-Jews, whether it was a specific prohibition on the Shiva Amamin. But Tosis, so in, in Megillah, Tosis asks, so Tosis so to ask, how come they didn't have to kill her? How could they accept her as a Gyaris? Here in Megillah, Tosis asks, how could Yeshua marry her? It says, uh, even if they're Megayer, you can't marry them. So Tosa says, uh, what well, you suggested, maybe she wasn't the Shiva Amamin. She was from Shar Amamin, Ubas Lagersham. She was an expatriate who had uh, emigrated to, to Yericho and lived there, but she wasn't actually from the Zion Amamin. Then some say that the Isra of Lotus Chatein, of not marrying people from the Shiva Amamin, some say that that only applies after they entered Eretz Canaan. That's not correct, Tosa says, because the Midrash says that even earlier the prohibition of Lotus Chatein applies. So this is, uh, this is a question. This is, both these questions really are, are serious questions. How, what, what was the heter of the Jews not to, not to kill Rachav? She was a member of the Zion Amamin. And what was the, uh, what was the heter to marry her? You're not allowed to marry the Zion Amamin. So one of the ideas, Tosu says, Al-Piyadibur, that, that, that this is kind of a catch-all terrorist that we give when someone in Tanakh, when an important figure like a Navi or a leader of, of Klal Yisrael does something which seems to contradict the halacha, we sometimes say, Al Piyadibur, that it was, uh, like we mentioned earlier, about Aliyah and Harakamrel, how could he bring Karbanos outside the base of Mekdash? You're not allowed to do that. It was a harasha that the Navi, either based on Nevuah or based on his own judgment, has the right to uh, provisionally set aside an Israel, everything except Avadazar. Even on a provisional basis, he can't do Avadazar. But anything else, the Navi has the right to temporarily suspend the. The, the halacha, in order to, in, in case of great need, that's called the harasha. There's a whole sugi about it in Yavamas. 
that, uh, that the Navi or Basin can make a harasha to temporarily suspend the laws of the Torah. We have uh, a similar idea that we've shown him say when, when they grapple with the question of Dvorah. Maybe again, maybe the share will get there eventually, but in, in Shoftim we have the story of we have the story of Dvorah. The, the, the Shoftim is the period of the judges. So, so I think we've mentioned in the past the, the, the Shoftim were, were leaders of Klai Yisrael for a period of several hundred years from after Yoshua until Shaul HaMelech, a period of several hundred years there were no kings, but Yom Mahem Ein Melech be Yisrael. The leaders of the Jewish people were, were figures called Shoftim. Yiftach, Gidon, Shimshon, Vora. And the, so the Shoftim, not so clear what they were. They, they seem to have been military leaders, many of them. They, they, led, they led armies, they battled the enemies of the Jews. They seem to have been, but, but also the, the word Shoftim means judges. It is, it is a Hebrew word that means judges. The book is called the Book of Judges. So it's not really so clear how much judging they actually did. They're not really described as sitting in, as judges. You know, to our mind, you know, in the modern government, we have a very uh, sharp division between judges, executive branch, commander-in-chief, and so on. We see these as very different functions, but it seems there may have been some overlap back then. They were called judges. So many we showed them assume that if they were called judges, even though they're not described as judging, they're described as being leaders, political and military leaders, they apparently were judges as well. So they ask about Dvorah. Dvorah was the one great female judge that we know about. It says, he shofta as Israel. She judged the Jewish people. According to most Rishonim, a woman is not qualified. She may be intelligent, but a woman is halakhically not, not qualified to serve as a dayan, to serve as a judge in a halakhic system. So that's how we passed in the Shulchan Aruch. So the question is, how could Dvorah be a judge if, the, if a woman can't be a judge? So some say, again, it means, it means judge in the other capacity. She led them, she led the army, she led the people. doesn't mean she actually judged. But there are those who learn she actually judged. So the question is, how could she do that? It's against the halacha. So some say it was a rasha. Some say that, that it, was a, it was a dispensation. She, she was in Nevi'a. The, they had Nevi'a back then. And they overrode this halacha on, on a temporary basis because she was just a supremely, superlatively qualified person. So she judged, even though normally women can't judge. Others, others say about Dvorah that they, the people accepted her as a judge. The halacha is, even those who are, not, who, are, who are not technically qualified to serve as a judge, litigants have the right, certainly in civil cases, litigants have the right to accept a, a particular person as a judge if they, if they trust them. People trusted her, so they accepted her as a judge. I'll call upon him, so getting back to Rachav, so Rachav, they did not kill her, they, they, and, they, and Yeshua actually married her according to the Midrash, and she became an ancestor of numerous great figures and numerous great Nevi'im and Nevi'as from Klai Yisrael. The question is why they didn't kill her and what happened to Sakai Kal Neshama and why they, uh, and how Yeshua could marry her. So as we've seen, there are, there are different shots. Either it was a Harasha or that before they conquered her, before they started the conquest, they were still allowed to accept Gerim or that, when, that, that, you know, that variations of those themes. This was an exception that they were able to accept Rachav Azan. The, the Pasuk says in Pasuk Chafei, the last Pasuk we read, the Pasuk says, that's Rachav Hazon of Yoshua. So the literal reading of Hechia would seem to mean he, he let her live. He didn't put her to death. So the, the Radak brings that shot, that, that he, he instructed that she be let live, she not be put to death because of the promise, because of what she had done. The Yeshlafari, she brings a second shot, that Hechia means He gave her a stipend, he, he supported her, he gave her, or Nachla, he gave her inheritance, lands, or possessions, he says. And that's what it means when it says, Batesha, Bekar of Yisrael. 
It means he gave her not just her literal her life, but he gave her something to live on. He gave her an estate. He gave her uh, he gave her possessions that she could live on, and that's the connection to Batesha Bekar of Israel. He gave her a footing. He gave her. He established her as a as a prominent member of the Jewish people, and then that that's what he calls the the Pirush Anachar. A third shot he says is the is that Hefka means he married. The, the, the Midrashim I saw don't act, mention that he married her, but they don't actually mention that's the Pshat of the word Hechia. The Radak says that some say that that's Hechia. Hechia means he, uh, I'm not sure which Midrash he's quoting, but he says that Hechia means by, that, that socially Hechia, that, that when, when Yeshua married her, that elevated her social status. He, other people might have said, okay, we're letting her live, we promised, but you know, my kids are not going to play with her kids, I'm not going to talk to her in shul. She's, she's a Canaanite, she's the enemy, so grudgingly we'll, we'll let her live. But no, but he, but he says that Hechia uh, means that by marrying her, Yeshua elevated her into a position of great social prominence. Kivan Sherosh, Yeshua, Lokak, Rachav, Leisha, She married the king, she married uh, Yeshua, the, our, our great leader, the, the, the one who they respected like Moshe Rabbeinu. If, if, if she's good enough for him, she's good enough for us. So, uh, right, and so he's pointing out that, that, that since, since she had been uh, since since she had been promiscuous beforehand, people might have had doubts about her children. You know, maybe, maybe she didn't give up her old habits so easily. But again, once people saw Yeshua married her, presumably there would have been a greater element of trust that, that now she was a, a changed woman. Now she behaved differently. Now she was uh, a fine and upstanding uh, woman of good morals, and uh, that that would have elevated her social position, right? And then the Radak says, uh, the Radak himself asks the question, you're not allowed to marry them? So he says, uh, first he brings Daniel's chat, that they were, they were expatriates, they were Nachram Hayub Ba'aretz, they were not from the Shiva Amamin. Some say, uh, some say again, he brings the other chat, that the Rachav became a Giyaris before the Jews entered, when the Meraglim had first entered Eretz Canaan, when the Jews were still outside. At that point, uh, the prohibition didn't kick in yet, so they could, so they could be, she could become a Giyaris back then. And, uh, but again, he said, this is the Machlokas anyway, the Machlokas in the Gemara, where the Lotus Katin, the prohibition of Lotus Katin, applies even after they get there is one, There is one sheet in the Gemara, the Lotus Katin only applies while they're still going. If they convert, there's no prohibition, it means you can't intermarry with them. But once they convert, there's no intermarriage for a convert. So again, that's the third approach. The third approach is that Lotus Katin only applies, only applies when they were, uh, only applies if, when they're going, not if they're gay. So we have, so three Pshatim in Hechia, Hechia means they didn't kill her, Hechia means that they gave her assets and the estate and so on. Hechia means they gave her social prominence by marrying her, which elevated her reputation and her social position in everyone's mind. And how could they marry her? We saw a number of Pshatim, Harasha, before they entered Eretz Canaan. Lotuskatin doesn't, doesn't apply to uh, doesn't apply to once they're Gerim, or that she was an expatriate, she wasn't actually from the indigenous peoples of Canaan.